for the podcast. So here we go. All right, now I think we're recording both on the podcast and doing the Facebook Live video. Hooray! So I'm trying to do both at the same time, which I haven't done before. But this is picking up the podcast that I did back in 2020. And I had started doing a series on bridging the divide. And I planned to do a third episode in that series back in like spring, maybe early summer of 2020. And then a bunch of major life transitions happened and I never forgot about this. I've always been intending to come back to it and just finally now have a good opportunity for it. So here we are. It's been a long time since the first two in the series. So I'll review very briefly what was in them, but Briefly, it was first we talked about Adam and Eve, and then we talked about Cain and Abel in the second episode. And so this is the next big story in the book of Genesis on Noah's Ark. And this story, I think, is important to us because I was looking at those stories in terms of the cycle of the rise and fall of civilizations. And the story of Noah's Ark, I think, represents where we are now um, at a certain point in that story of Noah's Ark. And that will give kind of a big picture perspective on what it is exactly that I am hoping to do with the new church that we're starting, which will be here in Spokane and also uh, something that will connect with people that are wherever, just the people that we know that are interested in this as well. As far as what this has to do with the bridging the divide theme, I won't say too much about it, but one thing is that I think that what will bring people together or where there's a lot of potential for bringing people together across the things that divide us is responding to what is becoming increasingly a global emergency situation and the need to figure out how to survive and how to continue human society in the face of climate change and all the disruptions that that's going to cause and other aspects of the ecological crisis as well. All right, so I'm going to start explaining this idea by just recapping very briefly what the first episode said in our, um, in our podcast, which was about the story of Adam and Eve and the fall of humankind. And the idea that I presented was that that story is about how as society became increasingly complex through the development of different technologies, especially, but also just, just getting bigger, you know, people moving in, living in cities and urbanization and that kind of thing, that the, the left hemisphere of the brain, uh, the more analytical side of the brain, became increasingly dominant, and this is based on the theory of Ian McGilchrist. Um, so the idea is that the left hemisphere of the brain became increasingly dominant, and that led to a loss of use of the right hemisphere of the brain, which is more, more what gives us that sense of spiritual connection and meaning and even like cosmic unity, that sort of thing. So... That was episode number one. And then episode number two about Cain and Abel 
is again about urbanization and another aspect of what that has meant for humans and that increasing urbanization and social complexity leads to increasingly a sense of social alienation and also ecological strain. So the third in our, in our series now is the story of Noah's Ark. And I think most people are pretty familiar with the story. And so I won't uh, explain too much. I think most people know that it's God looks at the earth and sees that things have gotten really bad and sends a flood that destroys almost everyone, just not Noah and his family and, you know, pairs of animals that are saved in the ark. So where I see this being uh, more or less similar to our situation today uh, is that as we discussed with Cain and Abel, the increase in technological uh, technological advancements and, like I said, urbanization. Now we have like super hyper-urbanization and globalization. That's led to uh, people feeling alienated from each other and has led to ecological strain, just as tends to be the cycle, right? The normal cycle. And as a result of that ecological strain and a result of the, the social alienation as well, uh, a breakdown eventually occurs. And so the flood represents that breakdown. The flood is God's punishment in the sense that it's just it's the natural consequence of what we've been doing. It's the collapse of an unsustainable system. And the story of Noah and Noah's Ark gives us some insights into how God responds in the midst of that situation, what God does when that kind of crisis is happening. And basically, God saves what is often called a righteous remnant, where it's the small minority of people who are responding in a way that is wise and actually prepared for what's happened, uh, what's happening whereas the vast majority of people just fail to prepare and end up uh, drowning, at least uh, as far as the story goes. So, so the righteous remnant put into terms that we might understand a little better is that it's, uh, at least I think of it as, sustainable communities. So it's communities that are behaving in a way that is wise, in a way that is responding to the calling of God, and that makes sense. That's not just short-sighted and looking at personal gain and pleasure and that sort of thing, but um, is looking beyond that to, uh, you know, what is meaningful and purposeful. And so those communities are sustainable, and they are better able to survive the ecological collapse. And then they also become the seed of the new social order that will arise after the flood recedes. And of course, in our case, that prospect is a very long way into the future. Uh, we really can't expect to see that happening in our lifetimes. We're, we're a little earlier in the story. Okay, so that's the basic idea. Um, I hope that makes sense. You kind of got that. Because I'm just going to move on to 
talk about this story in terms of like seven things that I take away from the story as I look at it uh, that teach us about how God provides for this righteous remnant or the minority that are responding wisely. So number one, the first thing is that there's a wise individual, and in the story it's Noah, around whom a community is formed. So that's Noah's family. And why is it an individual? Well, it's an individual because someone has to go first. Someone has to be the seed person. And the seed person doesn't have to be like the boss or the final authority in the community, but someone with a vision that can get things started and someone that can provide some guidance. And then why is it a community? Well, it has to be a community because, first of all, wisdom means connecting with others. Wisdom is about relationships. You can't really have a wise person without a community around them. Otherwise, they wouldn't actually be wise. And so for us, thinking about this, what does this mean for us? We need to be paying attention to those that are wise today, those that have real insight into what is happening in the world and what needs to be done and how we should be responding. And I certainly have come across many people that, um, either through their writing or just people that I know personally that are responding in a wise way, um, in one way or another, um, from whom I have learned a great deal. So there are great teachers among us, and it's just important for us to look to them and to join a community if we feel called to do that, or to start a community if we feel called to do that. Because the world needs more, (laughs) more of these kind of sustainable communities. Number two, the ark must be built according to God's specifications. God tells Noah how to build the ark. God instructs what the dimensions should be, what materials it should be made of, where the door should go, everything. So in the same way, the communities that will survive ecological collapse will not be communities that rely only on human human reasoning ability and that just that purely the left hemisphere of the brain, right? It will actually be communities that are open to receiving mysterious instruction or things that come from that more intuitive side of the brain. And to me, as a Christian, I think of that in terms of being guided by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is really what what heals that divide between the left and the right hemispheres of the brain. And I'll talk about that more another time, probably when I discuss the atonement. But for now, um, that is all that I'll say about that. Number three, the building of the ark will not avert disaster. And this is one of the hardest things about this story is that only a tiny number of people will be saved. Most of the people in Noah's time in the story, um, most of them drowned. And that's what we can expect with the current situation in our world today. And nobody wants that. And nobody wants to to think that that's what's really going to happen. Uh, Especially because we come from this fossil fuel-based culture where We expect the attainment of the impossible, beating the odds, a happy ending every time. 
because that's what fossil fuels have given to us so far, but they're not going to continue to deliver on that promise that they have built up for us, um, as we now are realizing. So we should not be expecting that. We should be expecting mass devastation, mass death, and the, the ark, the sustainable communities that survive, will be few and far between. They'll be the minority. So, there you go. Can't head off the disaster. We can just respond to it as best we can. Number four, the ark is filled with fertile pairs of animals. To my mind, that speaks to the sustainable community being a model, being a prototype, which will replicate naturally in the aftermath of catastrophe and even in the midst of catastrophe, perhaps to an extent as well. Uh, but these sustainable communities will be like the DNA or the genetic material uh, from which future human societies can arise after the collapse. Number five, the Ark kind of looks like a coffin. Uh, it's like a long wooden box. And it is also considered traditionally to be a foreshadowing of Christ being in the tomb. So what this means to my mind is that the sustainable communities that will survive, uh, they will practice self-denial. The wise community will start making sacrifices and imposing restrictions on itself and living below its means before it becomes absolutely necessary. Because eventually everyone will have to live more simply, or at least the vast majority of people will have to live much more simply. Uh, but the wise community will hold itself to that standard of the future now, before it is required, before, uh, you know, while there's still a choice. And that way it becomes less of a shock when it has to be that way. And there will already be some practices and some systems in place so that the community will not be as reliant on the, uh, the collapsing system. And I think that something like this did happen in the past with monasteries. Uh, monasteries that survived the collapse of the Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire. And that were just practicing a simple way of life and many of those were able to continue with their sort of self-sustaining communities as the chaos raged around uh, <laughs> outside of the monasteries and they were able to even preserve some books that became uh, seminal for the creation or the rise of, of new empires like the one we are part of today. <laughs> okay, number six. You may not be very familiar with this part of the story. Uh, I don't think they usually tell it to children, but after the flood recedes and the animals come out of the ark, then the humans are given permission to eat meat, which they before had only been given permission to eat plants. But it says now animals will be afraid of you and you can eat meat, or that's what God tells the humans. But they are required to account for the lifeblood of any animal that they kill. And so that's where we get the kosher rule that you have to drain the blood from the animal before you eat it. 
And likewise, humans are said that they have to account for the shedding of any human blood. And that's widely been interpreted to mean capital punishment for murderers. So the idea here seems to be that God is trying to limit violence in this new society that's going to be built after the flood. And part of the way that God does that is with this, you know, you have to account for the the life of any humans that are killed, and then also there's this ritual of draining the lifeblood from animals uh, that, are, that have been slaughtered, which reminds people that all life belongs to God, that it's not really ours to do with as we, as we deem fit or whatever we want with it, but it really, the lives, the lives of animals belong to God. And so this is a, a special new reminder. And to me, what I find really striking here is that in the story, after all that's happened with the flood, humans' relationship with the earth and its creatures has changed, uh, symbolized by, you know, now the animals are afraid of humans and they don't eat them. And it even seems like that relationship has changed for the worse. Like, <laughs> I mean, this seems like, oh man, this is, this is, a, this is a bad development that humans now are going to be eating animals. Um, and I think that's just kind of how life goes, that, yeah, sometimes things change and, and they do change for the worse. And God, in this story, does not try to make things go back to the way that they were. He just lets the change stand and tells people how to deal with it. And in the same way, I think that the way that we as humans relate to each other and the way we relate to the earth and relate to animals is changing very rapidly right now with the, especially the advances that we have in technology. And similarly, by the end of this ecological catastrophe, our relationship to each other and our relationship to the earth, our relationship with creatures, it's going to be very different. Things will be very different. And in some ways it, it might be what we would consider worse and there will be some real losses. And that's just life. And God is the ultimate realist. So God doesn't try to make things go back to the way that they were, but moves forward and gives a new commandment and a new practice and new instructions for how to face a new situation. So we can anticipate that being where the story will go. And then number seven, the last thing that I want to point out is that God puts a rainbow in the sky, promises never to destroy the entire earth with water again. And to be honest, I always thought that was kind of oddly specific uh, because it seems like God later on does things that are very similar. God will punish in the Bible, later in the Bible, God punishes entire cities or, or nations, kingdoms for their wickedness, which sounds an awful lot like the flood. And I think it represents similarly this kind of cycle of rise and fall of empires uh, that we've talked about. But it's true that it's not exactly the same thing happening because God didn't anywhere else in the Bible then destroy the entire world with water again. So my best understanding of why that distinction is important is that human beings are actually learning something. Like we're not just making the exact same mistake over and over again, maybe some similar mistakes, but we're, we are learning a little bit and there is some real progress. And that's a very countercultural idea, I think, in a lot of ways, because I certainly have heard people on a number of occasions 
saying that they don't think there is progress, or they think that the way that things are today is no better than it was in the past. Maybe things are even getting worse. Maybe we're devolving. And this story says, well, no, actually, there is, there's been some real progress, and, and the progress has not been lost. So, you know, this kind of balances with the point that I had before, you know, six and seven kind of, yes, some things might be worse, some things might be lost forever, and yet at the same time, we are also making a kind of progress. And that's a very hopeful, very hopeful ending, very hopeful way of uh, anticipating that there is some hope, even despite the catastrophic devastation that we can reasonably expect from this point. So those are my seven things that I thought would be good to say about this story uh, to help you have a better understanding of at least my perspective on what the Bible can tell us about where we are in terms of uh, this cycle of rise and fall of civilization and what we can expect and kind of what we should be doing. And I feel called to work toward trying to start one of these kind of arc communities and that's why I'm doing this new church thing and I'll explain next time a little bit more of the practical ideas that I have about how that can work today was more theoretical and big picture stuff and I just want to say I do feel embarrassed about one of my points being that this these communities should be started by a wise individual because I don't mean to like prop myself up as if I was some kind of great leader but um you know I I openly acknowledge that I have some very serious liabilities and weaknesses and I will tell you more about those in the future <laughs> um but I have been extremely fortunate and very privileged to learn a lot from people who have had great things to teach about um, the at least ideas about sustainable community and how that should be done. And I feel like, wow, I need to try to share what I've learned. And also because of my weaknesses and my liabilities, I need help. Um, I need help. I mean, any person needs help in terms, in face of what seems to be coming. So um, this is really a situation where very few people uh, would survive kind of on their own uh, as, as the real global catastrophes start to unfold around us. And the people that would survive would probably be people that are um, very willing to uh, bend moral principles and <laughs> act in their own best interest and not really think about others. So uh, many of us, yeah, that's not us. And so we need to figure out how to work together and and uh, form these kind of communities. So if you are someone that is also interested in that and you would like to learn more, then continue following what we're doing um, on Facebook uh, with the podcast. And you can contact me through Facebook if you are someone that I don't know and you want to talk about it something. And yeah. I think that's all. That's what, that's basically what I wanted to say today and what, what I've been wanting to say for the last year and nine months. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> so, 
we will end with a song, I think, and then I'll and then say a prayer. All right, Brandon, you he's yeah. gonna sing us yeah, yep, okay. shifting sands of time. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a ship out on the desert. All eyes dry as bone The wind blows through her rigging Sets the ragged sheets to moan On the deck there is a captain Spyglass to his eye He believes that God Almighty Will not leave him high and dry Shifting sands of time On the shifting sands of time God stretches out his hand Makes an ocean from dry land Sails us home across the sands of time We walk upon this desert Stretches far and wide No water for our children But the salty tears we cry Yet faith will build a new ship Turn this sand to foam And the one who made both sea and land Will sail us safely Shifting sands of time On the shifting sands of time God stretches out his hand Makes an ocean from dry land Sails us home across the sands of Shifting sands of time He is sifting We are drifting us home across the sands of time. Thank you. Okay, we'll say a little prayer. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for the great teachers from whom we have learned so much, teachers throughout history and teachers that are alive today. Thank you for giving us the opportunity still to prepare for what's coming. I pray that you would give us strength and wisdom and guide us as we work to to prepare for very difficult times ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for listening. See you next time.